Good morning. My name is Cheryl Stoddard. I'm connected through a small group, Ladies Bible Study, and uh, help out with the cafe. Today's reading is from Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. My name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary Bible Church. And uh, if that didn't sound like the most fun reading, well, I do want to remind you, we are in week seven of a series uh, of the book of Revelation. So uh, whether this is your first time with us or you've joined partway through in the series, I encourage you, go back to week one. Because in week one, we, we talked about uh, how do we, how do we uh, handle the book, what, what it's talking about. We, we made commitments to each other of how we're going to respond to this book. We, we did some important background work that serves us all the way throughout. And, and then most importantly, we, we asked, how do we read a book like the book of Revelation? And in fact, all of us could probably use a refresher on that. So uh, we said, how do we read the book of Revelation? Well, first and foremost, we do so with an eye to the Old Testament. We read the book of Revelation with an eye to the Old Testament. So as we come across all of these uh, difficult to interpret images and symbols that are happening right there, we understand what God is saying in this book by looking at what has God already said. Second principle is that we, we said it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. And, and the idea there is whatever interpretation or meaning that we are taking from the book of Revelation, it cannot mean something that's just for our lives. It was written to an original audience, these seven churches in Asia Minor. And then third, uh, it sh any reading that we take should impact how we read now. That we don't just throw our hands up and say, oh, this is, this is probably talking about some stuff that's coming way in the future. We might not even be around for it. Or it's written all the way in the past. No, no, no. These words, the, the truth that's contained in this book directly shapes how we live in this time that we are waiting for Jesus' return. They have so much relevancy for our life today. We talked about how we do read the Bible, but we also said how we don't read the book of Revelation. And the first thing that we said there is we don't read it by worrying. 
that this book is a gift to us. It, it gives us so much comfort that it shows to us Jesus and his plans for the protection of his people, that it's, it's given to us as a way to give us comfort in this life. If we read this in any way that, that makes us feel fearful, we are reading it wrong. And then the second thing that we said is we don't read the book of Revelation by dividing that it is a really hard book to read. And so many different Christians read it in different ways. And rather than us saying, oh, then we can't possibly know, we think that's a good thing. We think it's so good that Christians read it in different ways. Because as we meet people like that, as we're challenged by different viewpoints, that causes us to go back to the text, to evaluate their position, to see what it is that it's saying. It is something that gives us a better clarity on the, on the Bible but also brings us together as Christians. And I bring all of this up because in our series, we're getting into the section of the book of Revelation that has caused most people to divide over this. And it goes for quite a while. It's from chapters six through 16, which is, you know, the bulk of the book. And so as we're looking at this, the reason why people divide over, over this book is really comes from the question of how do you divide the book? How do you interpret the structure? Is it talking about things that are in the future? Is it about things in the past? Is it uh, showing that these things are repeated all throughout history? As we talk about these, these seven seals that are being opened and then the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, are these all talking about the same thing? You know how when you watch a sporting event, there's different cam uh, cameras and different angles to help you to see things from different perspectives. Is it doing that or is it uh, showing us a literal history? These unfold all in order. These are great questions to be asking, but we do so remembering how we read the book. We do so not by dividing or by fear or, or anything like that. We recognize that this book given to us is a gift, not something that splits the church. It also leads into what is my role here on a Sunday morning? What is it that I'm doing? And, and the, the, the bulk of what I'm doing is I am trying to preach not, uh, I'm trying to preach, and that comes down into two ways. I'm trying to preach in accordance with our statement of faith, our doctrinal statement, what we say we believe. And according to our statement of faith, you can hold to any number of positions and still be part of this church, still be welcomed as part of this church. And so my job up here is not to insist on one good reading of the Bible over another. I am gonna insist on a good reading of the Bible though. That part I'm gonna to hold to. But there could be different ways of doing that. And that is great. I think we are stronger when we have disagreement on non-primary issues. I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives this separation. He talks about things of first importance. How we say things are gonna unfold in the book of Revelation is not one of those things of first importance. And so it's good that we can disagree over this. And there's room in our statement of faith to do so. The second point is, I'm up here to preach, not to give a lecture. And so I'm not gonna evaluate the different positions. I'm not gonna say one camp uh, would interpret this and we'll spend 15 minutes on that. And let's look at the strengths and weaknesses of that one before we get to any of the other camps. I'm also not gonna be able to go through every single detail that we come in here. My role is to help us to see what is God saying and how does that speak to our lives now? What is it that God has revealed in this book and how does that shape how we are to live? So with all of that said, I look forward to leaving you all unsatisfied as we continue in this series.
Uh, I want to remind us of where we've been. So uh, we just came out of chapters four and five, and they're so important to make sure that we have the image that we find in those chapters before we move forward. We'll keep coming back to remember chapter four, remember chapter five. Well, in Revelation chapter four, we have this incredible picture of God, this majestic, holy, pure, infinite, awesome God. And it's important to have this image of him going forward because as we come across all of these different instructions about judgment and and God's wrath being poured out, we remember how glorious this God is. That because God by his very nature in this way, the only proper response is turning and worship and appreciation, giving him all that we have in life and praise back to him. And so as, as we see how glorious this God is, it, it should offend us when we see people who don't respond in the only proper way there is to do so. It, it, should, it should come as no surprise that a God that's pure and holy would bring about justice to those who go astray. It should be with his holiness and his glory as our priority. We see that there is a need for the restoration of all things. So as, as we talk about judgment, we don't, we don't celebrate these things. We don't say, yeah, go get them, God but we do see the, the need for judgment. Because as we look into this world, anytime that we say something is wrong, that is a judgmental term. And a God that's pure and holy, who can see truly what needs to be judged, what needs to be restored, we look forward to that happening. We also get to chapter five where we have this image of Jesus. He is this lion, this victorious king, but he also is this slain lamb. That before we get to any aspect of our judgment, we see God is, uh, Jesus is the one who fights for and defends his people. Yet he's also the one who's laid down his life so that all the judgment that we hear about in these passages does not need to be paid for by his people. That before there's any bit of wrath mentioned, it shows us how he has made a way for his people to be saved from that wrath. So it's important for us to keep these images as well. Jesus is this, this lion who's fighting for and defending his people. He is bringing judgment. And yet he's also the loving Jesus who has brought restoration and redemption for his people. He is those things. So as we read these chapters, Jesus is the one who's bringing this judgment, but he's also the one who's brought restoration. We, we said the book of Revelation gives us this picture of Jesus that tends to be bigger than the one that we have. We, we tend to have maybe one idea or concept of Jesus that we, we really appreciate and we miss some of the complexity of this, well, infinite God that Jesus is. And, and maybe as we're talking about Jesus as this lion and the lamb, we, we know him to be that meek and mild one who's died for our sins and, and we so appreciate that image, but we might not think about him as the one who's bringing judgment to the world but we're shown both here. Or maybe we know that, that Jesus is, is looking down and we know that he's gonna make, make all things right, but we, we don't fully trust in the fact that he's done it all to save us, that he has laid down his life, that there's nothing for us to do but trust into him. Maybe we have a hard time keeping both of those ideas of Jesus as this lion, Jesus as this lamb together. But what we find in Revelation chapter six and seven is Jesus as this lion, Jesus as this lamb. Well, he brings both judgment and protection for his people. And that's what we're gonna look at in these chapters, Jesus bringing judgment and protection for his people. 
It all starts as to what was just read for us. Uh, at the, in chapter five, Jesus is the only one worthy to take this scroll from the right hand of God. And, and we said that this scroll contains all there is to say, all of God's plans to bring judgment and justice, blessing and restoration for the world. All of the plans do that. And Jesus begins opening the seals of the scroll, enacting this judgment going out. And the first four seals are, are grouped together. They become what we know colloquially as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's this interesting image. It's, it's weird. What's going on with these things? Well, what did we say that we do when we find an image that's weird and we don't know what to do with it? We go back to the Old Testament. And as you go to the book of Zechariah, in chapter one, but mostly in chapter six, you see four horsemen. Would you look at that? Four horsemen sent out into the world in all these different directions to bring judgment on the nations that were oppressing Israel. And that helps us to understand what's happening in Revelation chapter six. That Jesus is sending out, he's using these political and natural disasters to, bring, to vindicate God's glory, to vindicate his people, to bring about restoration of the, the glory of God and the restoration of the people who are following him. That's what we see is going on with these horsemen. The first seal is open and it produces this rider on a white horse. And maybe if we've read the book of Revelation, we might be thinking, oh, that's gotta be Jesus, right? I mean, in chapter 19, we see Jesus himself on a white horse, so this must be him. I'm not sure that's the case. People make that case and, and more power to them. It's a fine reading of the text, but for a variety of reasons, I don't think it's the best reading. I'll give one simple one. All throughout the book of Revelation, you see Satan and those who are associated with him kind of mimicking the actions that we see God do throughout the book. Jesus, as this rider on a white horse, covered in blood before a battle even begins, showing that he has come to bring restoration, not to kill people by the sword. What we see on this white horse is one who very much so kills people by the sword. This rider goes out conquering and to conquer. They're making the point twice. So what it's talking about is the destruction that can come through military advancement. It's talking about the, the pain and suffering that comes from nations acquiring more and more, more people to subjugate, more land to hold on to, more important areas to, to have under their control. It is talking about military destruction and what comes from that. So it's not just talking about war, battles being fought, but the all-encompassing devastation that comes from not just people being greedy, but entire peoples wanting to add more and more. That's this first judgment that comes out. The second seal is open and it uh, produces this rider on a red horse who, who is called to, to remove peace from the land. Some people say, oh, that just means more war. I, I think it's a little bit more than that though. I think it's talking about civil bloodshed. So it's not just the fighting that happens as nations are warring against each other, but when peace is removed, when, when the, the fear of punishment for our actions is removed from the, the restraints of being civilized is removed, you see people turn against each other. So maybe it's talking about nations fighting against nations as peace is removed there, but it could be talking about neighbor against neighbor. 
that as disputes that could be so tiny and we might act passive aggressive now, what happens if there's no fear of being caught or there's no peace in that moment? There's no care for this other person there. Well, it can become quite violent in those moments. This judgment comes out as peace is removed, this civil bloodshed that happens. The third seal is opened and this black horse comes out. And uh, it's not just famine that's being talked about here, but it's the social breakdown that comes from famine. We're we're told about what the prices uh, turn out to be. It says uh, a quart of wheat for a denarius, to translate it into terms that we know, one day's worth of food for one day's worth of wages. So everything that you earn in a day is what it takes to feed one person in a day. That means families can't survive, let alone the other expenses that are to be paid for. What we know about prices is this is about a a 10 to 12 uh, times the prices at the time. So it's it's not inflation going up by 7%, which is devastating. It's going up by 1,000%. There's this other detail that we're told about here. Uh, This voice cries out, don't touch the, the wine or the olive oil. It's a, that's a weird description to be given. I, I, I was wrestling between two different interpretations about this. I'm not sure which one is, is right. So I'll, I'll lay them both out and let you make your own conclusions. Uh, one option is it's talking about uh, how wine and, and olive oil, they're important things. They had religious practices uh, and all kinds of other aspects, but they're, they're mostly luxury items, right? Like you don't need those two things to survive. So you need wheat and, and barley. So it's talking about more of these luxury items. So in not touching them, it might be speaking to the, uh, the financial disparity that can come in times of scarcity. That you have people who are starving to death while others profit on times where there's very little to be had. And so maybe it's talking about those who are wealthy, who are able to enjoy the benefits of wine and olive oil to make incredible financial gains off of selling those things, all while people around them are dying by starving to death. Could be talking about the financial disparity that can come in times of scarcity. The other option is it could be saying that the destruction that's being poured out in this this time of judgment is not all-encompassing. So if you were going to war, if you were invading another country at the time and you really wanted to do lasting damage to them, you would dig up plants like like these vineyards and olive trees. You would dig them up by the root and destroy them completely. And this would not just have a short-term effect like wheat, but it would have a lasting effect because wheat can grow back fairly quickly. But these are plants that take years and years before they're profitable, before they have any sort of impact. I I looked it up. I think a a vineyard takes three years uh, to mature before it's producing grapes good enough for wine. Olive tree, I think it's 12 years to reach maturity before it's, it's making olive oil. So by not touching these things, it's saying it's not a complete devastation. It's not years and years of rebuilding. I'm not sure which one it is, but it's, it's speaking about the social breakdowns that come from famine. Fourth seal is opened, and it is this pale horse, a rider on a pale horse, which the color is kind of this yellowish green color. Uh, it's basically uh, the, the color that was associated with corpses. It's no one's favorite color. 
I, I know sometimes people, people can get worried or, or are concerned, like, they just said their favorite color is black. But imagine if they said, they just said their favorite color is corpses. That's, that's much more unsettling. And much more unsettling is the effect of this judgment. Death for a fourth of the people on the earth. Now we sprint through that thing. And I talked about how I'm not gonna cover all the details and I just covered a lot of details. But it felt like it was important to say what is going on in these, these different acts of judgment so that we can understand what is, what is happening? Why are these being used? What I think we see in these first four seals of judgment, these four horsemen, we see a bit of progression of when sin is allowed free reign. We see this progression of what happens as people are allowed to do whatever it is that they want. War as nations go against nations. Social breakdown as people turn against people. Uh, the, uh, the social breakdown that comes from famine as people are clamoring over each other to get more and more. And then death. I don't think it's that hard to imagine what this looks like, unfortunately. Because regardless of where we situate this event, is this in the future, is this something in the past, we've seen these things occur all throughout human history. I mean, we've seen nations go to grab more and more as they've destroyed countries and people and cultures and histories in their unsatiable desire to add to themselves, destroying lives in the process. We see riots and revolutions. I mean, it's, it's hard not to recall the deaths under Pol Pot or Stalin or Hitler as we read things like this. Inequality, as people draw the line in all sorts of places. People grabbing for more and more at the expense of others. We have plenty of examples to see what happens when sin is given free reign. But what does it mean here that these are being used as acts of judgment? I mean, how can Jesus, loving Jesus, be the one who's initiating these things? He's the one opening the seals. He's, he's the one giving authority to do these things. How can Jesus be the one who's bringing these things about? Two things I think it's important to keep in mind. One, it's hold chapter four in your mind. God, this glorious, majestic God, who's all-worthy, all-powerful, as people rebel against him, as people do wrong by the only standard of good that there is, we crave there to be some sort of justice in that response. But the other side, to go to why these specific things, I, I think the language that's used is really important. As all of these different writers are, are coming out, uh, it's permission that's being given to them. It's authority to do these things. In verse three, it's the writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. It's, it's this language that's showing that things are being allowed. And so what I think is happening here is we see Jesus' active permission this isn't something he didn't realize was going to happen. It's not an accident. It's Jesus' active permission to allow humanity to see exactly where our rebellion ends. This judgment is allowing humans to see what it looks like when we get exactly what we want. And this is something that we've seen.
seen in various other parts of the Bible. I think of uh, Romans chapter one is, is a famous example of this. It talks about these people who have turned away from God, who don't acknowledge the heavens are the ones who declare the glory of God. We read about elsewhere. Revelation one says his, his nature, his, his, uh, what he's like is on display and people turn away from him to pursue the things that they want. And so God's response in verse 20, uh, 28 it says, and since they, these, these humans who rebel against God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He allowed them to have this debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the result of doing whatever it is that we want, of getting everything in our heart's desire is they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they gave approval to those who practice them. It's not a fun list to read. It's not something that we celebrate in happening. But as we see people who turn away from this holy God to pursue the, the content, uh, their heart's desire, man, it's terrifying to get what you want. That we see these people who, who turn away from the, the only source of goodness there is to pursue other things, to pursue every direction other than the one that's actually good for us. It goes down this route of destruction of judgment. But I think most importantly, these things being used as judgment, war and, and civil bloodshed and social breakdown and death, these things are being used as judgment as the reminder that it's only in him, only in Jesus that we can find peace and justice and security and life. Only in Jesus do we find those things that we crave for, that when we try to pursue them on our own, we actually instead find war, and civil bloodshed, social breakdown, and death. In the fifth seal, when that is open, it shows us that these things that are promised, that in Jesus we do find peace, justice, security, and life, we do find those. He holds his promises. But when the fifth seal is open, we're reminded that we don't always find those things in the way that we would always like. We don't always find them immediately in this life. That there could be strife, there could be struggle, but it doesn't mean God hasn't kept his promises. The fifth seal is a reminder that there's more than what we can see. This past week, there was um, a, a man, he, he's uh, worth hundreds of billions of dollars. He owns an electric vehicle company. He recently bought a major social networking platform and, and rebranded it. Um, in this past week, he tweeted something, or X something, I don't know what to call it anymore. Uh, he, he tweeted, uh, believe what you see, not what you're told. And maybe we like that. Like, yeah, I'm not one of these, these sheep just blindly being led astray. Like, yeah, you guys all think you know what's happening, but I can see what's going on. Believe what you see, not what you're told. Now, the problem with this is that our eyes are idiots. That we, are, we fill them with whatever it is that we want to see. That we can then interpret whether or not we truly want to believe the things that we see or not. 
We, we can filter through what gets to our eyes by who we surround ourselves with, let alone the fact that we can see things wrong. We'll see details that we interpret incorrectly. We see events happening and it turns out like, no, it didn't actually happen that way, but I have a firm memory of it happening, but it didn't happen that way. And I say all of this as someone so glad to be wearing contacts right now because I know that the things that I see are not always what's real. The things that we see with our eyes are not always what's reality. And so we need God to reveal to us what's true. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It is a revelation. It reveals to us what is true. It is so easy for all of us to look at this life on this world and assume that all, this is all that there is. Make things as safe as possible now. Gather as much for yourself now. Uh, go after the things that make you happy now. This is what life is, the things you can see and feel and touch and yet the reminder that we find throughout the book of Revelation, the reminder that we find here is that the ultimate reason for your existence is more than just this life on earth. And so we live and possibly even die announcing that truth, that there is more than what our eyes can see. This is Revelation chapter six, starting in verse nine, which I should probably be not in Romans, to read that. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 9 says, And then he, Jesus, again, opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what we see in this, in this passage is those who have been killed for being faithful to Jesus, that they, that they were faithful to him even to the point of death, that they trusted not in what their eyes always saw, but they trusted in what God had revealed to them, that they knew that there was more to their existence than just what was to be done on this earth. They had been killed for being faithful to Jesus. And so they cry out to God in this moment, how long until you avenge our blood and judge those who are on the earth? Hey, don't, don't hear this as petty revenge. Hey, don't hear this as get back at those people who hurt us. See, there's a, a big difference between praying, God, go and get that guy. And God, when will you bring about your earthwide justice? Because remember what we talked about, this picture of God in, in, uh, in Revelation chapter four, this holy, majestic, perfect, infinite God, that he is worthy of all praise. He is the baseline of goodness, that if he does not bring justice to this world, if he does not bring about judgment for those who have gone astray, then he's not a God worth following. He's not a God at all. And so the call here is, God, your reputation of justice must be preserved for you to be God. When will you bring that about? If he is not God, then there is no goodness. There are no morals. He is not glorious. So the call is for him to be just, to right wrongs that only he can do, to hold people accountable for the worst of infractions that there is, divine rebellion. 
And the result of those prayers is answered in the sixth seal. It's this image that comes to us from Isaiah 34, and it's, it's a horrifying thing to think of. It's essentially a creation being undone. The stars fall out of the sky. The islands and mountains disappear. That uh, There's these earthquakes. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. And, and all the while, in this horrifying picture, you have the people who are the most powerful figures on the, world, on the planet, kings and rulers, even people who have hundreds of billions of dollars, crying out in verse 16, this, this thing, anything to escape this wrath that's being poured out. Verse 16 says, calling to the mountains, these, these influential people, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? In the face of all this judgment, this wrath being poured out, who can stand before that? I know we went pretty quickly through this. And we did so so that way we can connect chapter seven through chapter six. Because chapter seven is so important because it answers that question. Chapter seven gives this other side of the story showing what's happening with the people of God in the process. And it it starts by talking about these 144,000 people who have been sealed by God. They they have a, a representation on their forehead that shows that they belong to God. They're protected by him. They're, they're, uh, they belong to him. These servants of God who are in connection with him. You know, as a way to save time in this series, I I, I keep saying this thing is debated. Instead of doing that, can you just assume that any part of Revelation that we're in is debated? I, I think it just makes things go so much more quickly for us. Because guess what? Who's these 144,000 people? That's debated. So as we look at this, first, let's look at that number, 144,000 people. Some people take that number to be literally. It's literally talking about 144,000 people, not one more, not one less. And people who take that approach would say, well, it's talking about how these are people from these tribes of Israel. So these are 144,000 Jews who believe in Jesus just before he he comes back in a second coming. That's totally fine reading. That's great. Uh, Another way to read it is to look at this number as being symbolic like we've said most of the numbers of the book of Revelation are. And so what's happening here is you have 12 sets of 12. As uh, as numbers are important, uh, they they all have uh, meaning behind them. So 12 kind of becomes this way to talk about the people of God. I mean, you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Jesus. And so it's not just saying the people of God, but, but it's 12 times 12. It's really putting an emphasis on the people of God. And then when you times that by a number like a thousand, a thousand had this uh, meaning of something being so vast, like you can't even count it. We kind of have something like it, how we might say, oh, there's a billion of those things. We don't mean that there's a literal billion. Like if you counted them, there's only 112. There's not a billion here. But we say it as it's such a big amount of something. They would use that with the number of thousand. 
So if this is symbolic as 12 times 12 times 1,000, then uh, this would be that the number is representing, and this is a really technical term, uh, so forgive me for that. Uh, this is representing the super duper massive complete amount of God's people. That's what this is being represented as. And so which one is right? You know, I'm not incredibly bothered by that right now. There's, there are some details about this, though, that I think are really fascinating. For one, it's, it's tracing these people back to these, these different tribes of Israel. And one of the things that we know about at the time is people lost the ability to trace their history back to tribes of Israel. During the exile and the time following, people lost some of the written record. They, they weren't uh, preserving marriages. They would intermarry between the tribes anymore. And so no one could really say, oh, my family goes all the way back to, to uh, Manassas. It, it became difficult to say that. And we might say, well, God would know what tribe they belong to. And that's absolutely true. God knows all things. But the problem when people don't know that is they're no longer protecting tribal lines. So they might be able to trace their history back to three, four dozens uh, of tribes of Israel. So uh, it's just a fascinating part that the tribes are separated out here. And then the other part is what's going on with this list of tribes? It starts with Judah first, which no list of the tribes of Israel has ever done that before. And so it should be making us go, something weird is happening right here. Why is Judah listed first? It's supposed to be Reuben. He's the oldest. Then the fact that two tribes are missing. Two tribes aren't recorded here. We're missing Dan and Ephraim, and they've been replaced with Joseph, which was never considered to be a tribe of Israel, and Levi, which was kind of off doing their own thing because they were priests. And so I don't know what that means. I have no idea. It's weird and it's fascinating and I can't explain it, but it should make alarms go off. There's something special going on with this list. But the thing that I think is most interesting is we have another one of those moments of hearing versus seeing. We, we saw this in, in chapter five. John hears of the line of Judah and he turns and sees a slain lamb. John hears of the number who are sealed, 144,000, and he turns and sees in verse nine, it says this. He says, and after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robe with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So whatever we land on with this, we all come to the same conclusion that what we see in this imagery being used is that God knows his people. He knows them collectively. They are here as a multitude before his throne, but he knows them individually, that they are countable they're able to be noticed as individuals following him. It shows us that God has sealed his people. They are his. They are marked by him. The, the sealing speaks to a couple different things. It, it speaks to the fact that God has protected his people. In the midst of all of this judgment, this other stories happening where God has sealed his people. Maybe not necessarily protect them from the events of judgment as Christians still go through difficulty. These martyrs are killed in the midst of this, but they are protected from the results of judgment. The ceiling points to the fact that we are in union with Jesus. We are connected with this one that because of our association with Jesus, our trusting in him, we receive all of the saving benefits as if we'd been faithful when he was faithful. 
The sealing points to what we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. How is it that we're able to live in the midst of what's happening here, in the midst of this life that we have? Well, God's presence, his spirit resides in us. God himself is guiding us in how we are to live. But ultimately, the sealing points to the answer that we found to the question at the end of chapter six, this wrath being poured out, this judgment here, who can stand? Isaac, can you throw uh, verse nine back up there again? Revelation seven, verse nine. Look again at the, the wording here. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. What's the word? Standing. Who can stand against the wrath of this lamb before the one on the throne? Well, here's this multitude sealed by Jesus, washed clean by the blood of the lamb. That not only shows us who can stand, but what our very basis is. We are called his, protected, guided, treated as saved as if we'd been faithful as Jesus, washed clean by the blood of the lamb. And the result of that is what we find at the very end of the chapter. This is verses 15 and 17. It says, therefore they, the, oh, that multitude who's able to stand, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's, what's our takeaway in a passage like this? One that's full of these details, that, that, that is a lot of time spending time in the text. What is our takeaway in a passage that starts with the wrath, the judgment of a lamb, but ends with endless praise for that same lamb? Well, I think there's a couple things that we could take away from this. First and foremost, we live now with our eyes fixed to the one who's on the throne. That, that, as we said, it's so easy for us to trust in the things that we see with our eyes. We instead live now with, with an understanding that he is the only one who's showing us reality. He is the only one worthy of, of our attention and affection. So we live our lives now, not swayed into believing that all there is is this life here, but trusting in what he has revealed to be true. Second thing is that we live with gratitude now. That the wrath that we read about in chapter six is not one that has been poured out on us. Rather, it's been poured out on Jesus. So we live with gratitude for this one who did not treat us as we deserved, but instead treated us as he has done for us. Third, I, I think this calls us to live with urgency in telling others of the good news that's found in Jesus. So often we can look at the judgment and respond with fear or panic or out of guilt of, I, I don't want people to experience this. But I think as well, we see the glory and joy that's found in living in what is real and what's been revealed to us as true against all else, that this God is glorious, that in him is life and security and peace and direction. And we want people not to experience that so they miss out on other things, but we want them to experience the only basis for good that there is in the world, to experience him now. And that drives us to tell other people the good news that's found in him. 
And then finally, we, and most importantly, we live lives of praise because he has given us the means to overcome all that we might find in this world. All difficulty and hardship, Jesus is the one who's given us the means to find real and lasting victory found throughout. I mean, after all, that's what he himself said when he was on the earth in John 16, 33. And I end with this. He said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world.